You are listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, where we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. The following sermon is by Dr. Ed Stetzer, author, missiologist, and interim teaching pastor at Calvary. For upcoming events and services, visit our website at cbcnyc.org. And now, here is today's message. Hey, everybody. Hey, Calvary. It is, uh, boy, it's great to go through the Gospel of Matthew. I hope you're having the same enthusiasm that I am having towards opening God's Word and looking through the Gospel of Matthew. We're learning uh, about this king, the kingdom, and you know, and 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 all this kind of you know through the eyes of Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to look today specifically at the fulfillment of prophecy. You can take your Bible out to Matthew chapter two. Matthew chapter two. We're going to look at verses uh, thirteen through twenty-three. But before that, I want to talk about some literature for you with you for just a moment. I want to tell you about something called the Crucible. It's a classic American play written by Arthur Miller. It's published in 1952. You might read it today, and it was certainly famous. It revolves around the Salem witch trials of 1692 and 1693 that took place in early colonial Massachusetts. Um, I was required to read it in high school. Maybe you were as well. It's a rather odd subject matter for a play on the surface, but one of the reasons it became so popular and so influential uh, was actually not the surface matter, but the real reason the play was written. See, and I, I didn't remember this in high school. They probably told me this in high school, but I remember learning this later. The real point of the play was a commentary on McCarthyism. Uh, McCarthyism from the 1940s, 1950s, right? So under the leadership of a guy named Senator Joseph McCarthy, the, uh, the American government accused countless Americans of espionage, communist leanings. They were subsequently investigated and questioned many of them regarding their beliefs and their political opinions. Many times these accusations were made without substantial evidence. According to Wikipedia, and they can't put it on Wikipedia if it's not right, uh, quote, the term McCarthyism is also now used more generally to describe reckless, unsubstantiated accusations as well as demagogic attacks on the character or patriotism of political adversaries. Now, don't get nervous because I'm not. This is not a long political introduction. But Arthur Miller himself was actually investigated by the House of Representatives Committee on Un-American Activities, probably as a result of writing this play. So this play, on the surface, seems so simple, right? Uh, it's it's about the witch trials and people accusing somebody of being a witch and not having evidence and accusing someone else and there's sp- accusations spreading, but the play is actually a lot a lot deeper if you understand the cultural forces that were active in America at the time it was published. So why am I telling you all that? The same could be said about the passage from Matthew that we're studying together today. We're looking at different uh, places where Matthew says, in effect, this happened to fulfill the Old Testament scripture. So Matthew is building a case. Remember, a gospel is written by someone, Matthew, to someone, in this case, Jews and Jewish Christians, about someone, Jesus. And um, and so Matthew could simply say, this is being, this is happening to fulfill the Old Testament scripture. Simple enough. Yet in each case, Matthew is pointing to a deeper meaning 
that's not secret, right? We're supposed to see it. I mean, Arthur Miller knew what he was doing when he wrote The Crucible. Uh, so did the House uh, Committee studying un-American activity know what he was doing. But the deeper meaning, the one beneath the service, is an important part of Matthew's point. So we're going we're gonna to look at the text and kind of walk through the text, and then we'll begin to kind of walk through the series itself. Now remember, so the title today is, is, um, is Matthew, the coming king, fulfillment of prophecy, and we're looking specifically at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. So hope you got your Bible open, and we'll take a look at that together. It says, look at the text. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet. This is key. Out of Egypt, the Lord had spoken to the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. Remember last week we talked about the wise men. It's not a Christmas story. It's a Christian story. They became furious he sent, uh, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years of age or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. The wise men had escaped, but the, well, the babies in Jerusalem didn't, right? The babies in, um, in that whole region, Bethlehem, and that region were, didn't escape that. So that was fulfilled, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, which is a key theme in Matthew. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to a dream in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So this is this is years, you know, like, I'm, would it be a couple years later? An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph saying, rise, take the child, that's Jesus, and his mother, that's Mary, and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. Okay, and and when he had heard that Archelaus, excuse me, Archelaus was reigning over Judea and the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled he would be called a Nazarene. Okay, lots of fascinating stuff in there. It's a little long, uh, but we're gonna take it in chunks. And uh, I'm gonna build it out uh, with some letters of what God does, letter A's, right? So you can work through these with me, right? So first is that God acts, God acts to bring salvation for his people through his son, Jesus. God acts to bring salvation for his people through his son, Jesus. Look at the next verse, or the first part of the verse. It says, now when he had departed, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there till I tell you. Herod's about to search for the child and destroy him. He rose, took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt, remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Okay, so um, this is the third of what we call the fulfillment quotation narratives in Matthew. Uh, the first one is in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. 
which which says uh, which says this way. It says, um, but after you consider this, it goes on, and the angel of the Lord appeared and says this, and 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 it speaks about verse twenty two. This is to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, right? And so, and then you go to two twelve. Uh, two twelve says this: uh, being warned a dream, they returned their way. This was to fulfill. So there's this recurring theme of fulfillment that's actually there in the text, right? So the angel warns the family to flee. Uh, the verb is about to, right? So it's um, it's when it says that um, you know when when the uh, they departed, behold, the angel Lord appeared to rise and dream, take take the child to his mother. Herod's about to search for the child. So Herod's about to do this, right? Means the response required is urgent. The fact the family left at night, which would have been considered more dangerous than traveling in day, lets you see how severe the situation was. So Joseph, uh, as his example in the scriptures, he's obey, he obeys God perfectly and flees to Egypt. Um, and again, the journey was 75 miles to the border. We don't know how far into Egypt the family traveled, uh, but a lot of times they would have gone to Alexandria, right? So um, because that's, there was a strong Jewish community there, and they'd go there if they needed to kind of get out. It might be like from New York City, uh, where we are, maybe it's like going to Philadelphia today, right? So it's it's a decent distance. Uh, it's a new community, um, disconnected from maybe some of the other community as well. So, But King Herod's intent was never to, to, to worship Jesus. We knew that, right? His intent was to come and kill Jesus. We know from studying his rule that he grows increasingly paranoid. So this is not, you know, you see the story in the Bible, like what's going on here? But but Herod grows increasingly paranoid. Um, when he kills his own wife, uh, and he kills his three of his sons, who he thought might try to overthrow uh, him. Uh, and so he, I mean, there's all these people killed. So, but God is all knowing. None of this was a surprise to him. So he sends an angel again to Joseph: get out, get your family to Egypt, so that Jesus would not be killed by King Herod. Now, here's. Uh, some of the more maybe perplexing part of this is the fulfillment, right? Because you see in here it says um, is, it says um, that that well first he fled to Egypt. Now uh, people, many uh, liberal scholars, maybe deny the authority of the Bible or the inerrancy of the Bible, would say that's not really real. That that didn't happen. Um, so, but um, when we look at this, you know, we 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 believe that God's word is inerrant without error. It describes what happened. It describes what happens accurately and well. So what happened here is um, Matthew goes and quotes, um, and here's where it gets a little strange. He, he quotes Hosea 11.1, 1, where God, through the prophet Hosea, said that he called his son out of Egypt. Let, let's, let's take a look at the passage. Right, it says, um, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. So out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, it's pretty obvious when you go to Hosea 11 that this is reference not to Jesus, not to the Messiah, but to the nation of Israel. So Israel here is God's son, whom he rescued from Egypt and led into the promised land, right? So we're very familiar with that story if you've been in church. If you have been in church, right? We know that, that um, God uh, rescued the people of Israel and brought them out of captivity, out of bondage, and more out of Egypt, right? So, um, so yet he, um, so, but Israel is consistently unfaithful, disobedient to the covenant uh, he made with his father God. So, 
Though Israel always rebels and sins, God speaks in Hosea 11 of his ability to, uh, of his inability to give up on Israel. He speaks of a time in the future when he'll gather Israel from the West. Matter of fact, in the prophet's words, let's take a look at what the prophet says. The prophet says, uh, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the West. So what's going on here, right? Uh, by the way, this is, uh, this is where a lot of the Aslan, Aslan imagery from Narnia probably comes from, if you're into, into the Chronicles of Narnia. So, so the question is, in what sense does Jesus fulfill Hosea 11.1? 1? I mean, that's, that's the question of the day, right? Look here at the passage again. It says, um, it says, uh, it says that was to fulfill, right at the end of this page here, that was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. So how is Jesus the fulfillment of what was about Israel in the Old Testament. Okay, so this is where it gets really exciting to me, right? I said perplexing earlier on purpose because like, well, why, how can this be? But here's why it's so awesome, right? Throughout the New Testament, Jesus is viewed as a true and better Israel who does what Israel itself could not do. In many ways, Jesus followed the pattern of Israel, but in a perfectly obedient fashion, right? You're not, this is not like a secret code in the Bible, but Jesus was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. They for 40 years in the wilderness. He was baptized and escaped the judgment of God, right? He escaped the judgment of God. They passed through the, uh, they, they pass through the Red Sea and escape the judgment of God, right? He, he blesses the whole world through salvation. Uh, there was salvation. Israel was supposed to bless the whole world, yet found itself unable to do so. So Jesus is the true and better Israel. Um, and Jesus is the means, really, through which the entire context of Hosea 11 will be fulfilled. He's the lion who will roar and gather his people to himself. God is looking for a time, wait, preparing for a time, readying us for a time when the lion will roar, will roar and his children will come back to him. So Hosea is pointing toward the coming of the Messiah, the lion of Judah, Aslan from Chronicles of Narnia. So, um, so in a sense, he's uh, recapitulating, you know, kind of uh, the role and... Um, and, and, and the actions of Israel in the life of Jesus, which would make sense to us because we know that Matthew is a Jewish follower of Jesus. Matthew is tying in Jesus very appropriately to, um, to, to God's work and the people of God in Israel in the Old Testament, right? So number one, God acts, right? We saw that God acts to bring salvation for his people through Jesus, through his son Jesus. God acts to bring salvation to his people through his son, Jesus. So that's where we're starting. Number two, God accomplishes his purpose for his people through his son, Jesus, right? Again, we're just going back and forth. One is God acts to bring salvation for his people through his son, Jesus. So that's, that's number one. And then God accomplishes his purpose for his people through his son, Jesus, right? So let's Let's take a look. This is uh, verse, the next verses, just right, right, the next part. It says, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region where, where who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then that was fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice, another fulfillment, a voice was heard in Ramah, 
weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So just in general, I want you not to miss the level in which Matthew is engaging the Old Testament here. Um, now, also, too, he's actually engaged in the Old Testament in ways that uh, we we can't read the Old Testament and kind of say, well, we think this means this today. You know, the Old Testament has a meaning. Um, and, and yet Matthew is going back and saying, this fulfills something in the Old Testament that's very particular, very unique, and more. And when we see that, we get a picture that for for us, the, um, the, the picture of Herod, Herod realizes he's been outwitted, fooled by the wise men. They never came back to see him. So again, we don't know how long that is, but you know, we're probably not talking, you know, the wise men weren't there at the birth of Jesus. They come later. We don't know exactly how long, but, um, it's, and it's never good news when a unstable maniac realizes he's been fooled and Herod goes into a rage. So Herod's Herod's discerning enough to see God's purpose spoken through the prophets, yet arrogant enough to think he could stop God from accomplishing his purpose. Herod's a piece of work. Herod the Great, though, could not stop the purpose of the King of Kings. Now, remember, too, one of the things that you have to realize is that um, as an evangelical, that's kind of a description of partly of how we would take the Bible. We would use the word like inerrant to describe the Bible without error. And so, but people who don't hold those same views, um, more liberal scholars, that would be a word they would use to describe themselves. Now, it doesn't mean it's not the same thing politically, you know, politically conservative, liberal is different, but, and the words aren't real helpful all the time, but there are people who think that, um, you know, they you might say they disbelieve parts of the Bible, or maybe that's not the right word they would use. They would say that it's not written in a way maybe that you and I might take it. So they've tried to, um, for example, say that this part of the story has to be made up. Because no one but the Bible, this is true, no one but the Bible records a massive killing of children who are age two and younger in Bethlehem. Uh, They conclude that the slaughter of this magnitude would have been recorded in other sources other than the Bible. But I will tell you that I don't find that convincing. And a lot of other scholars don't find that convincing uh, either. Um, Because it's not hundreds or thousands. You know, Bethlehem's not a big town. Um, and so it's t- maybe 10 or 20. It doesn't make history outside the Bible, but those were violent times. Remember, Herod kills his wife, three sons, and lots of others. So here, this is the fourth fulfillment quotation in Matthew, emphasizing Jesus is the promised Messiah. Um, and again, what's perplexing is, uh, is a bit of the fulfillment language, right? And Matthew um, uses the fulfillment language, but quotes... Jeremiah 31, let's take a look, but quotes Jeremiah 31, 15. It says, this is what the Lord says. A voice was heard in Ramah, a lament with bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Okay, so we certainly know that this is a tragedy here, but how does Jesus fulfill that passage? So let's go to its original context. Let's get a little bit more of the background. First, uh, Rachel's wife of Jacob, um, long since dead when Jeremiah 31, 15 was written. Um, She's seen weeping for her children, which would be the people of Israel who were being exiled to Babylon. So that's a little more of the context, right? Um, But the overall context of the passage is one of hope. 
It's actually one of hope. Look at the more of the context, right? The immediately following verse 15. So remember, we looked at verse 15, which was um, a voice was heard in, in the lament, Rachel weeping, refusing to be comforted. But look at verse 16. This is what the Lord says. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for the reward for your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration. And your children will return from the enemy's land. There's hope for the future. This is the Lord's declaration, and your children will return to their own territory. So again, you're hearing the idea of the exile. They were taken away into captivity, but the hope is coming. So while there is still weeping and slaughter of the innocents, the coming of Jesus is the beginning of the end of suffering. The Messiah is going to set all things back right. Those sin and suffering are still active. Hope has arrived. So the tears of the, of the grieving are being fulfilled. The true Son of God has come, and he will comfort those who hurt. His work will alleviate suffering. So actually, when we see the embrace of the suffering language, man, this applies to us very practically. Suffering is a result of sin, both ours and that of other people. Jesus has come to remove sin and remake the world where every tear will be wiped from our eyes. Yes, there is still suffering, the time is, but the time is short. All those who place their faith in Jesus can find a hope and a life beyond the suffering. So when the passage says it fulfills, um, let's look again. It says, a voice was heard in, in weeping and loud lamentation. Uh, she refused to be comforted, but it says the voice, it fulfilled that was, was spoken of the prophet Jeremiah. So the, the full fulfillment of that is actually in the coming of the Christ. And I love the coming of the Christ as the central narrative of our story. So remember, number one, God acts to bring salvation for uh, his people through his son, Jesus. Number two, God accomplishes his purposes for his people through his son, Jesus. God acknowledges the marginalized through his son, Jesus. Let's look at the next part of the passage. When Herod died, an angel Lord came and appeared to him in a dream to Joseph saying, rise, uh, take the child and his mother. So we know that, oh, I've read this already once, but he takes the child, they go to the land of Israel. Uh, they, they, his, the, Herod's son is ruling in his place. He's afraid to go there. So he goes to Galilee, right? And then it says this, this is going to be a key sentence. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that which was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled uh, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, I want you to look super closely at that passage. I'm leaving it up there for just a second, just the last sentence, because we've read through the first part. But in the second part, it says, and he, that's Joseph, went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken of by the prophets, so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he'd be called a Nazarene. Okay, now I want you to notice a couple things, all right? So um, a couple things to see. First, um, it says prophets, not prophet. Notice the first, all the time it's by the prophet, and it goes, we can actually quote the verse. Here, there's no verse quoted. So why is there no verse quoted? Well, here's the thing. Nowhere in the Bible does a prophet specifically say that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. Matter of fact, Nazareth didn't exist uh, as a town during much of that time. So, okay, I've said twice now how we see the Bible. We see the Bible as without error. So is this an error? Well, the key is in the word prophets, and the key is in the word prophets. And that's what I want us to look at and look a little more closely here. Because um, here, what we find is 
Is God speaking to the kind of people? Well, let, let me give the background. A couple of years, maybe a couple of years, but we don't know for sure, but probably. Uh, Joseph, again, has a dream. Um, and this dream is that he's supposed to, uh, the angel of the Lord comes to him, rise, take the child. Let me put it back on the screen. Uh, rise, uh, take the child and mother, go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life is dead. So it comes Joseph's time. He realizes Herod's son is ruling in place of his dad. So he goes to uh, Galilee instead of um, Bethlehem because of this, uh, this dream. Now, um, now Herod's oldest son is in charge of the area. Actually, kingdom was divided in four ways after Herod died. And, and his son starts by just killing 3,000 people, right? Um, he's actually so bad that the emperor removes him and, um, from there. But so Joseph, knowing this, removes the family to Nazareth. Um, and again, it's Jesus, uh, it, the claim is Jesus fulfills a prophecy. But again, the Old Testament never says the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. So what is Matthew saying here? Now, Matthew's not unaware of these things. Matthew is here claiming that Jesus um, fulfills a prophecy that doesn't specifically appear in the Old Testament. Again, Nazareth hasn't existed as a town that long. So, But Matthew's so careful with Scripture, um, and he quotes verses. I mean, he's no fool, so what's he getting at? Well, the language tells us that it's a little different. He, he says prophets, plural, not a specific prophet, because um, prophets singularly predict certain things, but prophets predict that Jesus is a Nazarene. And he uses the word uh, that in English to introduce the prophetic fulfillment instead of the usual phrase, what was spoken, right? So, so again, let's look at the passage again, right? So it says, uh, it says here, it says, he went and lived in the city of Nazareth, so that what was spoken, whereas normally it says what was spoken, but he says that which was spoken. So it's pointing to a theme of prophecy rather than a specific prophecy. So what's the point? Here's the point. Nazareth kind of stinks. Nobody likes Nazareth. Nobody thinks of it as a great place. Um, it's a place where no one wanted to live or to be known to be from. It's kind of, I mean, it's like being called a hick or another derogatory name. It'd be like, you know, hear later on people say, you know, what good can come from Nazareth, right? So the, it, the identity is kind of, um, I mean, again, it's it's all it's all bad things. I can't I can't tell you nice things about it. You may feel like your identity is on a label, right? It's uh, but your your identity is in Christ, and so any label anyone puts on you doesn't matter. But that label certainly was a label then, right? So, and we see this later in the Gospels, even when it says, "Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Philip. Philip found Nathaniel, and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the in, in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth.'" Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. So there's a sense the prophets point to Jesus as being from an undesirable and rejected bad place. I apologize to, 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 uh, to Todd and Sharon, but it might be like someone from Arkansas, right? Oh, they're from Arkansas. Now, don't, I love them, right? I, I cleared this with them beforehand so to make sure no one was mad. Um, but, um, but again, it's, it's a place that people might look down on Maybe people in New York City in particular, someone in Jerusalem is going to look down on Nazareth. Someone in New York City might look down on Arkansas or wherever. And if you're from Arkansas, I love you too, not just Todd Sharon. I love everybody. But so, so the prophets point to Jesus as being one who is rejected and from an undesirable place. They didn't talk specifically about Nazareth in the Old Testament, but they did talk about the Messiah being from a rejected and a place that people didn't like. Uh, and th th being misunderstood and rejected. It would have been, uh, it would actually would have been great if he was Jesus of Bethlehem. 
because that's tied to King David, right? Same with Jerusalem, Jesus of Jerusalem. Instead, he was Jesus the Nazarene. So Nazareth has this bad reputation. Uh, it was actually, there was actually a Roman military outpost there, and it had a lot of um, things that kind of take place around military outposts that are not good. Um, and and so, so all this is this reputation is that God had a purpose in all of these specific details. So just as Jesus was humbly born uh, in a stable, placed in a manger, so he was from Nazareth, a place nobody cared about or wanted anything to do with. Jesus cared for the oppressed, the marginalized, and the ostracized because he came, he was named from a place where the oppressed, the marginalized, and the ostracized. That gives us all hope. He cares for the professional in Manhattan. He cares for the homeless man in Soho. He cares for the executive at NBC, and he cares for the barista in Hoboken, right? He cares for all of those. He is in every way our humble savior. This perfectly fulfills what was predicted specifically by the prophet Isaiah. Listen to what Isaiah says. He had, there's a song, he had no humble form or majesty, but it's he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. Nope, no appearance that we should desire him. He's a Nazarene. He's despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like some, he was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Now, why go to all this detail to tell us all these things? Because Jesus didn't simply just ride through life unscathed. He came, um, he struggled, he was hungry, he was was tempted, the Bible says he was tempted. Uh, He came to empathize with the downtrodden, to understand what they went through and to save them. He is the Savior for all people. So no one not even Herod the Great could stop the work of Jesus for our salvation. No sorrow we face in this life compares to God's purpose for us in Christ Jesus. No label put on us can change our identity once we trust in Jesus, right? Why? Because we have, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace. This Jesus of the Nazareth, this Jesus of the Nazarene, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. So this passage that speaks so much of who Jesus was prophetically, we've got examples of prophetic, 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 right? And it's beautiful. And you could, some Bibles have this a great middle section where all the prophecies of the Bible are listed and Matthew ties some of them here. But the prophecies don't just prove Jesus is the Messiah. They tell us some of his character. They tell us some of his care. They tell us some of his concern as the Messiah. Jesus the Nazarene. So when we see and we understand some of what this points us to, we actually get a bigger and more powerful picture of who God is in Christ. So let me go back to these three things, right? First, God acts to bring salvation for his people through his son. God accomplishes his purposes for his people through his son, Jesus. God acknowledges the marginalized through his son, Jesus. So don't miss that. So Matthew is building us towards the story of King Jesus. And the more I walk through the story of King Jesus, the more I walk in joy and knowledge that God is at work, that God had a plan. God has a plan for you. God has a plan for me. So yes, today's, today was a workman passage. We had, to, we had to plow some theological ground today, and we did. 
and we looked at uh, three different ways that Jesus fulfilled prophecy and more. Next week, we're going to continue walking through the Gospel of Matthew. But I want you not to miss that God is at work. This is not something that God decided at the last minute. The Old Testament points to it. Uh, the heart of God is seen in who Jesus is, the Nazarene. Next time you hear and sing the song, Jesus, the Nazarene, you remember that that was a place that people didn't want to be from. And we have a Messiah who can relate to us even in our brokenness and our failures. So my encouragement to you is let's look one more time at this final passage, right? It says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one's been tested every way as we are, yet without sin. So let's approach the throne of grace with boldness, right? Jesus the Nazarene, if he's a Nazarene, we can approach the throne in boldness. If he's who the gospel writer Matthew points to the Old Testament says he is, we can approach the throne with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that by your grace and your goodness, you have redeemed us and called us by name. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the Nazarene. We thank you that he's the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. We thank you for the faithful witness of Joseph throughout this passage. We thank you that this reminds us that your plan was not something thought up at the last moment, but this was your plan through all these days. Father, we pray that you might draw us closer to you and you might remind us that as Jesus is the Nazarene, we can come boldly to the throne of grace and that's what we do now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit cbcnyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to Tell It From Calvary.